Hey, <laughs> I'm Stephen Weissong. It is good to be with you this morning. How's everyone doing? You doing good? We, we get that question asked to us every day. How are you? My favorite response that I ever heard, I was at a restaurant. There's a waiter serving on us. I said, how are you? He said, I'm ultra good. <laughs> I was like, I don't know about ultra, but usually that's our typical answer. How are you? Well, I'm good. I'm fine. If you want to be grammatically correct, I'm well. Those are the default answers. But, but when was the last time someone honestly looked at you and asked, how's your soul? How's your soul? Uh, in other words, how is the inside you doing? This week I felt a tug on my soul to bring this question before us. So, so this morning we're going to do a little soul searching and get ready for puns. I've got them all peppered in here throughout our time together. They won't all be that funny, but we're going to do some soul searching. Uh, a few years ago I was living in Salina, Kansas, the middle of nowhere. And uh, Kansas is so funny, it's just like a flyover state. I didn't even know things existed in Kansas until I lived there. But uh, I was living in Kansas, and I got out of my house one day, I got into my car, put the key in the ignition, turned the ignition, turned the key, nothing happened. It must have been some kind of fluke, okay, I'm not going to panic, it's okay, stuff like this happened, I take the key out, put the key back in the ignition, turn the key again, nothing happened happen. Now I can panic. Now it's like, okay, all right, well, I don't know what's happening. I don't know what's going on. Now, here's what I didn't do. What I didn't do is I didn't get out of the car and go to the outside of the car and start yelling at the paint. I didn't start going, you are broken. No, it wasn't the outside of the car. There was something outside car lessons that my dad was trying to give me when I was younger. And I never went to mechanic school, so I had no idea what I was dealing with. All I knew is that my car had an issue. So now I'm sitting in the car, and I'm freaking out. And I'm sitting there going, oh my gosh, my car is dead. I am stranded. I'm probably never going to be able to go anywhere ever again, and I'm probably going to get fired. You know all the rational thoughts that you start thinking when you're in these situations? Luckily, my coworker was married, and she was married to a guy who is really knowledgeable with cars. So I called her up, and she and her husband drove over, and he got out of the car with something that I never even had in my car. He got out of the car, and he had this big, huge toolbox. We walk over to the car, we pop the hood open, and like a master looking over the car, I was going, I wish I could be like you. He's just looking at the car, and he said, it's your battery. It's definitely your battery. And I was going, now we're getting somewhere. So we drove over to an auto store. I bought a battery. We put the battery in the car and bada bing, bada boom. I don't know why I wanted to do that, but I wanted to say bada bing, bada boom in church. So this was the moment to get it in there. And all of a sudden, my car roared back to life. And we get this, don't we? We want to make sure our cars are shiny on the outside. But ignore the work under the hood, and that car that was supposed to take you 300,000 miles won't leave the driveway. So, how's your soul? How's the inside you doing? Your soul is the battery that powers your entire being. 
Quite literally, your soul is the gift of life breathed into you by God himself. And God's plan for your life is for you to be so much more than a dead car in a driveway. God has places for you to go. Great, big, wonderful places. And some of us this morning, we need a soul jump. Maybe you've entered church today and you know, you know there is something you are dealing with on the inside that is causing you to feel stuck in life. It's giving you fear. It's keeping you up at night. It's causing you to worry. And this is what I call our secret life. Every single one of us has a secret life hidden from the sight of others. We hide this with how we smile, with how we interact, or how we avoid contact and isolate. Uh, the only one we can't hide our inner selves from is God. But so often, our sole attention to God is an afterthought to an angry outburst, a judgmental remark, or ungodly behavior. And because nobody is really an expert on the soul but God, we feel like we are grasping at straws, trying to piece ourselves together. And sometimes we feel like we're making progress. We took a step forward. But then we just go back to the loop of the same problems, the same struggles, the same troubles. And all of a sudden, we just start putting ourselves through this cycle of life that's over and over and over. And what happens is we become so used to the cycle, we just accept it as who we are. There is something wrong, and that's just how it is. But that couldn't be further from the truth. And so this morning, we're going to go into John chapter 5. John chapter 5, Jesus is traveling into Jerusalem for a holy day festival. We don't know what festival he was going to, but we do know that Jesus loved to celebrate with his people. And while he is in town, he takes a detour and heads over to an interesting gathering place. So we read John chapter 5, verse 1. We read this. Afterward, Jesus returned to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish holidays. Inside the city near the Sheep Gate was the pool of Bethesda with five covered porches. Crowds of sick people, blind, lame, or paralyzed, lay on the porches. In Jerusalem, the pool of Bethesda was rumored to have mystical healing powers. And what would happen is every once in a while, the pool would start to bubble up. And some genius was like, hey, the pool's bubbling up. An angel has touched the pool. If you get into the pool, you can be healed. If you're the first person in, you're healed. So crowds of people started gathering around the pool, competing for a chance to get healed. I don't know if you've ever been to a big rock concert or a big gathering, but I, I, I always go to those events and I'm like, great, I'm in a human herd. You ever walk in, you get in, you try to get to your seats, but it's just you're scrunched up and you're just shuffling and just going, if I can just get to my seat, I can get out of this. Or when you're trying to leave, everyone's leaving, there's thousands of people, and you just get scrunched up and you're just shuffling along in this human herd, and you're going, if only I can just get to my car and I'll be free from this. Imagine that's what's happening at this pool. Crowds of needy people all waiting for bubbles. And then they're pushing, crawling, shuffling, looking for a way to be free. 
That's the scene that Jesus walks into. Now, what makes things a little more awkward for all these people is that we now know this pool was actually fed by a subterranean spring, and that's what made the water bubble. It wasn't an angel. But it's amazing what you'll believe it is if it has been advertised as something that can set you free. Now, all of this sounds pretty crazy to us. All these people are practicing, are placing their terrible situations on an unproven, unscientific, totally theoretical superstition. It's not like us sophisticated 21st century humans who believes our lives would be vastly improved with essential oils. <laughs> or, uh, or a massive net worth or the right politician, or the cosmic power to do anything we want in the world to make the world how we want it to be. These crazy pool people lived by the motto, if only I could get into the pool. It's not like we have the motto in our world today, if only I could get a little bit more. And then fill in the blank. We don't do that. Oh, oh wait. We kind of do. The Bible is so relevant to our lives today. <laughs> you know what's weird to me? I have served in churches for over 10 years now. And what's weird to me is there are people who come to church frequently and they sit in church with absolutely no desire for anything to change in their life. It's like when I went to the dentist's office and the dental assistant was standing over me and she said, now Stephen, I need to tell you something. I said, let me stop you right there. You're going to tell me that I need to floss. <laughs> and I said, I, I don't floss. I don't. They, they could show me pictures of what my gums are going to look like if I don't floss. They could give me a little thing of floss as I leave the office, but I don't floss. And there are people who have spent hundreds of hours in worship, and they sit in church and they go, I won't change. I'm not going to change. And I've noticed that there are some things in my life that I would like to see change. But in my time in the church, what I've seen is that most of us love the idea of God changing our circumstances more than God changing us. And when we are asked, what is something you need changed in your life, many, many people respond with something like this. I need people to change. I need the people at my job to change. I need my spouse to change. My kids are out of control. They need to change. Everyone around me, those people, they need to change. Rarely do we go, well, the problem is I'm selfish. I'm prideful. I'm being judgmental. I need God to change me. And I think this is the result of God's people neglecting our responsibility to be keepers of the soul God has given us. Your soul is God's gift to you to live a life fully charged by his will, his way, and his design for you to be whole. If we are not tending to our souls, then our lives aren't going to go very far. 
So there's a pool in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate with a crowd of people waiting for a change, waiting for a movement. Verse 5 says this, one of the men lying there had been sick for 38 years. When Jesus saw him, so I want to stop right here. We're going to wait right here. Okay, I want you to see this in the verse. It says, when Jesus saw. When Jesus saw. This is good news for the soul. Jesus sees and cares for the one lonely person. For the one broken person. For the one surrendering person. He sees you. He sees me. You are not alone. You are known. And this is the desire of the church, that you will belong, that you will be known, and that you will become more like Jesus. Jesus never let the size of a crowd get in the way of those who desperately needed him. This man had been sick for 38 years. His situation is hopeless, and he's just accepted it as his new normal. This was his reality now. That's the one person that Jesus approaches. Verse 5. One of the men laying there had been sick for 38 years. When Jesus saw him, good news for the soul, and knew he had been ill for a long time, he asked him, would you like to get well? Now, here's what we would expect to read next, and I'm going to act it out in dramatic fashion. Are you ready? Okay, let me get into character. Scene, okay. Would you like to get well? Yes, Jesus! Yes, I want to get well. Hallelujah, you're here. And then the verse would say, and Jesus touched the man. And the man smiled. And in a loud voice, the man said, Jesus, healer of my body and my soul. And he felt the presence of Jesus fall on him. And he got up, he picked up his mat, and he put world peace into the world in the name of Jesus. Amen. Oh, wait. It doesn't end there. There's verse 7. As it turns out, this guy doesn't even know who Jesus is. So he answers. I can't, sir, the sick man said. At least he's respectful. For I have no one to put me into the pool when the water bubbles up. Someone else always gets there ahead of me. This man has staked the last 38 years of his life on the chances of getting into a pool to find freedom. Maybe he tried really hard for those first 10 years, tried to really crawl into that pool. But after getting pushed aside, after getting beat out, after getting stopped, that stuff can eventually start to wear down a person's soul. So now he's just made it his cozy reality. He wants to get better, but he just can't. When I was a kid, I really enjoyed the show Sesame Street. And the show reinforced my mom's wonderful teaching of how to count and how to spell. It was fun to sing along, and it was fun to eat cookies with Cookie Monster. But one of the most interesting characters on Sesame Street was Oscar the Grouch. As a kid, it was so funny to see him make wild appearances out of a trash can. It's just, he lives in a trash can. That is just so Oscar. But now as an adult, 
And I think about it, Oscar lived in a trash can. That's gross. I don't want to live in a trash can. And I always thought Grouch was like the type of species that Oscar was. But now I get it. Grouch was part of his character description. Here's a little Sesame Street fun trivia fact. The first season of Sesame Street, Oscar was the color orange. But Jim Henson wanted to make him green. And then it really explained what happened. But they do give this. If you Google Oscar the Grouch, here's a description you can find explaining some things about Oscar. Here's what it says. Oscar the Grouch is a green furry monster who lives in a trash can on Sesame Street. He is always miserable and grouchy. This is how he got green. Oscar explained that this change was due to his vacation at Swamp Mushy Muddy, where it was so damp that he became covered in slime and mold. How's your soul? How's your soul? Jesus approaches a man who is all alone, waiting for something external to happen in his life to set him free. But on the inside, this man has been sending his soul on vacation to swamp mushy muddy, where it is damp and can cover you in slime and mold. And the way for Jesus to break through most of the time with the people he encountered was to ask a question that pierced the soul. And so he asked the man, would you like to get well? Jesus doesn't ask, do you want to feel better? What Jesus is about is giving us more than a feeling. Jesus wants to get to where feelings come from. He wants to get to the soul of the matter. And this man, now face to face with God in human form, gives Jesus an excuse. He tells Jesus how things are done around these parts. This is his normal. This is his reality. He's accepted it. He's embraced it. He's comfortable with it. The battery is dead. And so often people give the power of control to their problem, to their addiction, or to their illness. People a lot of the times prefer the misery they know to the mystery they don't. And this man had been in his sad condition for so long, it ended up paralyzing his will and his soul. I can't became the motto of his life. And the theme song of his life was, I have nobody to love me. And you have to imagine Jesus is standing before this man, looking him face to face, eye to eye. And Jesus has just got to be sitting there thinking, if you only knew who it was standing in front of you. So how's your soul? Do you want to get well? Because what happens next in the story is the miracle. Verse eight through nine says, Jesus told them, stand up, pick up your mat and walk. Instantly, the man was healed. He rolled up his sleeping mat and began walking. In the Hebrew, Bethesda means house of grace. And that's what this story is all about. What the religious leaders set up as a house of superstition, Jesus used to illustrate the overflow of God's grace. It was grace that brought Jesus 
to the pool of Bethesda. It was grace that loved a lonely soul. It was grace that saw and listened and knew the needs of a broken spirit. It was grace. Grace is what breaks through our mental prisons we have locked ourselves up in and sets us free. How's your soul? Jesus will make you new. He makes us new. Yes, he will. If you believe in him as Lord and Savior, he tells your soul to pick up the mat and walk into a new reality and into a new normal. Jesus will make us new. But the next thing he wants to do in our lives is he wants to make us healthy. He wants to make us healthy. So what do we do about keeping our souls healthy? I thought about that a lot this week. This was my biggest question, and I developed a practice for soul health that's, that I started calling soul posturing. The posture of your soul is a practice you can do in your life to allow God to work on the inside so you are free to be who he designed you to be. Not who other people want you to be, not what other people are telling you to be, but who God designed you to be. And what I've learned this week is that our soul is desperate to be whole and desperate to be thriving. So I have three little practices that you can do called soul posturing that will help you be a happy person on the inside who on the outside is tenacious for Jesus. Amen. So here we go, soul posture number one. Number one, then one thing you can do, soul posture number one is meditation. Meditation. That word meditate has a weird meaning in our world today. Meditation usually means to empty your mind. And that's called sleeping. <laughs> you know, it's not, it's not meditating. Meditation really is a prolonged focus. And I think there are two ways that you can meditate. One, you can focus on God's word. You can focus on God's word or you can focus on God's world. The soul needs an intentional point of focus. The soul without a center has no anchor and it will be easily tossed by the storms and temptations of life. The soul needs a center for wonder. And meditating on who God is and what God does awakens the wonder inside of us. Meditation has to be intentional. It's not an emotion. Meditation isn't something you wake up and you're like, I don't feel like doing it today. That's an emotion. It's intentional. Meditation is waking up going, I don't feel like doing it today, but I know it's good for my soul. So I'm going to. It's being purposeful to find the beauty of each day, to see the beauty of each person, and to see ourselves how God sees us. If you're able to look in the mirror and you're able to look at yourself and go, wow, I am wonderfully made. I am God's child. I am completely loved. If you can start focusing on that, the way you treat people, the way you see the world will start to change. Focus on giving your soul a center by meditating on God. Soul posture number two is this. It's memorization. 
memorization. The psalmist had it right when he wrote, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. It is amazing to me our capacity to rattle off song lyrics or to state football facts or to recite all the things that are happening on the stock market or to pull movie quotes just out of the air with little thought. What I've noticed in my life is that when I start memorizing Bible verses, my outlook changes. I have more peace and I have more joy. And it's amazing how relevant God's word to our lives is when we can quote it from the depths of our souls. One of the tools that God gave us to improve the health of our souls is his word. His word is a compass for healthy living and prospering. Every morning, I get a little text on my phone from the YouVersion Bible app with the verse of the day. And some of you are going, I haven't ever memorized scripture, or it's really hard for me to memorize things. You can just get the YouVersion Bible app, Bible verse of the day. Start on Monday. Just whatever that verse is, memorize it for the week. Start small and then build your way up. When you hide God's word in your heart and soul, it will shine through in your life. Soul posture number three is this. It's momentum. Momentum. There's a great verse in Ecclesiastes 3.11. Yet God has made everything beautiful for its own time. He has planted eternity in the human heart. But even so, people cannot see the whole scope of God's work from beginning to end. We have an instinct inside all of us that life does not end at the grave. And just like how your soul is God-breathed, you also have a God-built pull inside of you to be in relationship with the maker of your soul, to find peace, to accomplish something with your life for his kingdom. Your soul needs momentum. The reason our diets fail and the reason our goings to the gym fail and the reason some of us will walk away from our faith is because we spend years starting and stopping and starting and stopping. If you've ever made a New Year's resolution, you know what I'm talking about. We go, this is the year it'll be different. (laughs) But what happens is we start and we stop and we never give our soul the push it needs to find momentum. And that's why grace is so amazing because God's grace God's grace is always rushing up alongside of us and it's saying things like you are more than your past. You are not a failure. You can overcome this. You are not broken. So many of us spend so much of our time on our knees begging God to give us things he's already bought for us. Asking for things he's already died to give us. Yes, there is a time to pray, but we have a Savior who acted for us. Your soul needs active momentum. It needs a plan and a purpose only God can reveal. And you're sitting there going, how will God reveal my plan, my purpose? Refer back to the postures one and two. Meditation, memorization. The closer you get to God, the closer he gets to you. What I've learned is that usually it's whatever makes you sad, mad, or glad is what's pointing you towards the purpose God is calling you to run after. It's soul 
posturing. Now, here's my little tagline that I came up with, soul posturing. I think it can go places. Here's what I said. Soul posturing for a more holistic, healthier, and happier inside you. When I take this on the road, I think I got it. <laughs> we, we do not have the power to control what is happening around us. But we do have the power to control how we respond. It's a shift of perspective. It's answering yes to Jesus. It's embracing the mystery of faith in Jesus instead of staying in our misery by the pool. It's letting Jesus change your battery so your soul can leave the driveway of swamp mushy muddy and get back to the road of peace, purpose, and endless grace. While I was living in Kansas, there was one Starbucks in town, just one. And one day I walked into the Starbucks. I went there a lot. I also have a problem with going to Starbucks. It's just too good. But I walked into Starbucks, and I, I'd been there a lot. I, I knew the manager. The manager, his name was Steve the Coffee Master. <laughs> that was his official title. So Steve the Coffee Master is in there. One of the assistant managers is in there. And this older gentleman, they're all wearing green aprons. They're sitting around a table. I'd been there enough to realize that this older gentleman, he was new. And on the table was all these little red cups. And I watched in fascination as Steve the Coffee Master said, all right. We're going to taste the coffee. And they all took a little cup of coffee and they tasted it. And then Steve, the coffee master, said, did you taste how robust that was? Did you see how smooth that one is? Did you taste how citrusy that one is? And then he said, all right, now we're going to smell the coffee. And he picked, they all picked up these little cups and they smelled the coffee. I just thought that was hilarious. They're all just smelling the coffee. But as I was watching this, it struck me that the only thing that matters to a Starbucks employee is knowing the coffee. Sure, they've got to know how to work the register and they've got to know about the gold rewards program and they've got to know about the pastry selection. But Starbucks sells coffee. They've got to be able to tell a customer, this one tastes citrusy. This one smells like walnut. This one is really robust. If you want to work at Starbucks, you've got to know the coffee. And I think a lot of us, you're hearing what I'm saying, you're sitting there going, duh, yeah. But somehow, when it comes to our souls, we forget this simple truth when it comes to knowing Jesus. So here it is. When we know Jesus, when we have tasted and seen and touched and smelled Jesus, we are acutely reminded that he won't give up on us, that he sees us, that he knows us, that he has grace and abundance for us. When we know Jesus, we are reminded that even our greatest failures can be used for God's future glory. When we know Jesus, our souls are set free to be the best version of ourselves that God has designed us to be. And I believe that Jesus, by grace, has found his way to you this morning. And he's looking into your life and he's asking the question, how's your soul? Do you want to get well? Let's pray. Jesus, in the quietness of our own souls, I just ask that you would speak to us. Jesus, as we leave this place today, 
speak to us. May we tune out all the noise, all the distractions, and sit and try to hear that still small voice whispering inside the soul, telling us you're loved, you're forgiven, you're healed. Come with me. I want to make you healthy. God, as we partake in communion together this morning, may we remember what you did on the cross for us. God, may we give you our lives. There's some of us, Lord, that on the outside, we're faking it. We're smiling, we're laughing, but on the inside, we're down, we're hurting. God, you see us, you know us. May we give those parts of our lives that are causing us trouble, that are causing us misery, may we give those things to you knowing that you are big enough to handle our burdens and you want to give us something that is light and free and good. Speak to our souls today, Jesus. May we find a happier, healthier, more holistic us because of your love and your grace. In your awesome, awesome name, amen. Well, today is the first Sunday of the month, and here at Hillside, we take communion together. And on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he went up to a room, and he was with his disciples, and they shared a meal together. And Jesus started doing something that probably would have caused the disciples to go, what are you talking about? But at some point in the meal, Jesus took some bread, and he, uh, he said, this is my body, broken for you. Whenever you're together, do this in remembrance of me. And the disciples were going, what? <laughs> then Jesus took a cup, and he said, this is my blood, spilled out for you. This is the new covenant. Whenever you're together, do this in remembrance of me. And the disciples said, well, I like what's in the cup, but I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> but we know now what Jesus was talking about, where Jesus was taking us. He's talking about the cross. And on the cross, we have the greatest power washing for the soul ever. On the cross, we can find forgiveness. And so today, as we take communion together and in solidarity, I would just ask that you remember what Jesus gave, what you will remember that Jesus died because he thought you were worthy of being saved. Jesus cannot imagine eternity without you. And so he's opened up a way for us to live with him here and in the future. So as part of Hillside tradition, I'm going to ask if there's a couple of people, we need four people to help serve communion. Is there any volunteers that would like to get up and help serve communion? Katie Redding, you've been volunteered. <laughs> All right, okay, we got two here, two more. Hillside tradition. This is our tradition, okay? One more, okay, bam, okay, perfect. Jane, you'll come up here. So what we're gonna do is we have our communion stations over here. We're gonna have one on this side. We'll have another on this side. Jane and I will be walking around. If you are not able to come forward, please just raise your hand and we will come and find our way to you. And as you feel led, come and partake in communion and in the remembrance of what Jesus has done for our souls.